The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. The current issue of Lion's Roar, which used to be Shambhala uh, Sun magazine, has a, a section in it called um, How to Meditate Like the Buddha. And I thought, it was really interesting. Many different commentaries about uh, different ways and aspects of meditation. But then what I thought, and the question arose for me, is not how to meditate like a Buddha, but how do you and why do you meditate? Why? Because I suspect that very few of us sit down and think, boy, I'm going to meditate like, or try to meditate like a Buddha. I think we have much more um, modest goals, like, let me get through this period with a little bit of um, peace. Now, for some of us, of course, I think we go a lot deeper. But at the same time, I think there have been a lot of times when we just want to get through this period, whatever the period is, with a little bit of peace. So this question, what is your goal for meditating, came up for me. And I thought that we could start with a really brief little exercise in which I'd like to ask you to, whoever you're sitting next to, to just turn around in, in uh, pairs. And I'm going to ask you very, very briefly, tell your partner, why is it that you meditate? I'm going to, we can just sit down. I'm going to ask you to get in pairs first. And then we'll have a moment of silence. I'll ask you to just look, think about it. You don't have to go deep. You'll probably know what, exactly why. So if you would just turn around, whoever's sitting next to you. <laughs> Thank you, friends. I'm wondering if anyone would be willing to volunteer. Just a few words. I meditate because, in one sentence. Anybody? And I'll say there's no right or wrong reason. Yes. To appreciate his breath. Great. Good. Anybody else? Yes. Pardon me? I want to be more awake and aware. To be more awake and aware. Yeah. Did you have a hand? I think I'm looking for uh, internal quiet. Internal quiet. Thank you. I'm sure everybody, I appreciate this, everybody's got your own reasons for meditating. Um, and maybe there's a lot of overlap. What I would like to suggest and what I'd like to look at tonight is not only why you particularly meditate, but um, go on and take a look and an overview, or perhaps you call it a map, at what the uh, meditative journey is about. I think when we first get in to meditation, we may have one reason for doing so. And that reason may be changing over time. I'd like to say that in a sense, every one of us, whatever reason it is that you meditate, we're all jailbreakers, was the term that came to me. We're jailbreakers from the jail of our mind. Our minds have kept us in jail. And whether we use that term or not, you know what? That's the effect of what we're doing 
It's the effect of what we're doing. At the beginning, many of us believe that it's external circumstances that are the problem. And then we begin to realize, wait a minute, it's actually the way I look at external circumstances. And I think most people here, I mean, we have a combination. You know, We have certain external circumstances that we don't like, but nonetheless, we realize the mind's got a role in how we relate to all of this. So tonight, that's what I thought about. Starting with why you meditate for right now, and then looking at this process, this meditative journey and where it goes. And what I want to do is to kind of talk about it in phases. Now, phases is a bad word because phases makes it sound like there's something cut and dried and there's nothing. It's an opening progression that happens and a lot of overlap. Nonetheless, there is a progression in the terms of why we meditate. It'll shift over time. It shifts over time. Um, and I think when we start to meditate, we do it because you know, we have expectations. We've heard so much about what can happen with meditation. You'll have greater peace. You won't have so much stress. You'll have anger management. You'll make, be more clear. You'll be more loving. Uh, you name it. Uh, many, many different reasons. I know that um, I teach MBSR. And I usually ask students, what do they want? The participants, first time, uh, first evening, what do they want to get out of it? And many people said, I want my mind to shut up. You know, it's like, well, I hope by the end of the MBSR they have recognized that's actually not what's going to happen, and it isn't even the point. But nonetheless, we have all kinds of expectations when we begin to meditate. And also, we want to improve. When we first get to it, we really want improvement, and we sooner the better, thank you. You know, we really want it quickly. Then we start, we actually dig in, we start to meditate, and it's like, whoops, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, I think it can be a great letdown, it usually is in my experience when I am working with people who are just beginning with it. Uh, for one thing, they realize that their mind is chaotic, and I think every one of us knows that so very well. But when you first realize it, you can think, this is a failure. Yeah, I'm not getting anywhere. And I have to ex explain that, you know, the very fact that we recognize the mind is chaotic is an insight. People don't think it's an insight. You have to be really kind of guided to realize this is a recognition. Your mind's always been chaotic. All of our minds are chaotic. We just don't recognize. So to recognize the chaos is an insight. This is good. This is good. And the second, I think, factor that happens when we first start, and let's face it, it probably happens all the way down the line, boredom. I mean, I think you can be meditating for years and still find that there are times when it really seems boring. And boredom actually is a lack of attention. That's boredom, a lack of focus, a lack of attention. And there's an, like an inherent problem here because we meditate and we know that we are working with our attention and we are kind of cultivating attention. And yet, how do you cultivate attention if you have a lack of attention to begin with? It's kind of a catch-22. I think that there are a few things that are help in this respect, and one is patience. And as a culture, we are very impatient, naturally we know. You've seen that word crazy fast, or hyphenated word crazy fast. 
We've been seeing it around a lot. This is what we want, crazy fast, our society, culturally. Patience. We cultivate patience. And we, I think another thing, remembering our suffering. What's the alternative to meditation? The suffering that brought us there to begin with. We meditate, hopefully, to alleviate that. And then finally, trust. Trust in this path. At first you take it and have to take it on trust. Knowing that countless people over the ages have practiced it and have found something in it. Have found something in it. And I think at the beginning, you know, at the beginning, I think we're trying to do it right. We've been told all you have to do is pick up any of the uh, journals these days, popular journals, and meditation is often referred to as a technique. And in our scientific minds, and to our scientific minds, we think, ah, a technique means you only have to learn the technique, you apply it, and bingo, there are the results. And of course, that doesn't work like that either. But we do understand, and many people talk about it, meditation as a technique, as a technique. If we hang in there, and I know everybody here I think has because you've been, you're here tonight, and it's nobody's first time. If we hang in there, we begin to sense some evolution, some progress. We also find challenges. First of all, in terms of the progress, there are moments of peace, moments of contentment. It just may be a moment, but it is enough to say, whoa, there is something to this. There is something to this. And we also have insights that is about ways we see ourselves, like the one I've just mentioned. Wait a minute, my mind's always been chaotic. We have insights about ourselves. Like we're trying to be loving, and kind, and in fact, we realize that we're highly critical about everybody, including ourselves. That's an insight, the degree to which we are critical. We have insights, which is why the Buddha said, come and find it true for yourself. There's no amount of talking about it that's going to um, convince you entirely. We have to find it true for ourselves. The insights are a joy. Even when the content of the insight is not joyous, even when you realize, oh, I do that all the time? Yeah, I do. This is not joyful. And yet the actual insight is joyful. The process of insight is joyful. Showing you, yeah, you're on a path that is really solid. Um, at the same time, the challenges. There are, as every one of us know, insights that are really unpleasant, that we would rather not have be true about ourselves. Rather not be true about ourselves. We find monkey mind, the mind that's going all over the place still continues, and it doesn't matter how many times we say, the moment you recognize that your mind is off someplace, bring it back and that's your moment of mindfulness, you know what, it's true, and it isn't heartening, because your mind keeps going on anyway, and it's not so heartening. Now, the other truth is, is that we, um, when we, our minds do run and run and run, some of us recognize 
unexamined or unresolved issues come up. That's painful. And we've often talked here about trauma and that it may be necessary counseling, professional counseling to help. Just come, it, it complements our mindfulness meditation. We continue what Buddha called wise effort, also called courageous energy. It requires energy, courageous energy to continue with the meditation. We learn that really meditation and this path isn't for sissies. It really requires a lot from us. And in fact, down the line, it requires everything, not just a lot. It requires everything, but we're way before that. We just know that this is really challenging and it requires a lot. It requires courage to continue to look when what you're finding can be quite painful. When really everything that you want to do, you're sitting, you're meditating, you want to just kind of stop and run and get out of there, and it's asking you to stay and lean in to whatever is present. Not everybody can do that, but here we are. We're doing it. We're trying. We're trying to do it. Once we are able to work through, as we are able to work through, there are some later stages in the meditative journey that arise. And I asked you to begin with, if for a moment you would think of, why is it you are meditating now? I would like to ask you, and to just to do this silently now, not in pairs, for a moment to consider, has your reason for meditating now changed over time? Reason for meditating changed over time? Maybe in the past, did you meditate for a different reason? Did you come to it for a different reason? And if you're brand new to it, you know, maybe it hasn't changed. But just asking yourself, has it, has it changed over time? Just take a moment. I'll invite you to think about that. Thank you. So I would like to make some suggestions about what happens in some later phases. As we continue this journey of meditation, we may come for whatever reasons in the beginning, but eventually I think we begin to recognize we meditate in order to know what is true. I think over time, our reasons for meditation changes. It's no longer to become just a better meditator, even no longer primarily to get relief from the suffering, because some relief has probably come, some moments of contentment. You begin to recognize that we meditate, or you meditate, in order to know what's really true. True not about just me, but what is true? What is true in this life, this existence of ours? Not scientifically true, 
necessarily, although it, not, it won't clash either. But on a deep, I will say, existential level, what, what's going on here? What's this all about? The Zen people call it the great matter of life and death. What is it, this great matter of life and death? that stays right in our heart and keeps knocking at the door, calling us, calling us. That's why I think eventually, what? We eventually begin to seek what is true. Another word you might say, feeling better as a result of meditation is no longer enough. It's wonderful, but it's not enough. Eventually it's also about what's true going again to Zen, they call this inquiry about what's true, the way-seeking mind, way with a capital W, the way-seeking mind. We become lovers of truth. We really, really want to hear. We want to know what, what is most deeply, what is it? we begin to hear that internal voice that begins to be compelling. It's not just what teachers say or what you read, but that internal voice deep within. Here's a, a poem, I think, by the poet Rumi, Sufi poet, that I think captures this so beautifully. And he says, sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. Like a fish out of water, here's the waves. Come back, come back. This turning toward what you deeply love saves you. I'll read it again. Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. As a fish out of water hears the waves. Come back, come back. This turning toward what you deeply love saves you. Maybe you feel that in your heart. Maybe you have reached that place where you really want to know what's, what's happening. In these later phases, as your meditative journey, as the meditative journey unfolds, we recognize that meditation is no longer just a technique. In fact, we then see that there are moments of simply pure awareness, moments of simple openness, moments that are universal, that are timeless. We can experience so simply, this is not uh, an out, an, uh, non-ordinary state of consciousness. This is so simple, it's so everyday and so close. And I know many of you have experienced it just, maybe just for an instant. Ah. When you experience that, I think you know, many of you have found out, there's a shift that happens. A shift in the nature, and I call it a shift in consciousness, but in a shift in terms of how you relate to life in general. You see, because this shift is no longer about you, you realize there is in this that has nothing to do with you. It's not self-centered. We live in, an, in our everyday life, we live in a self-centered way. I don't mean in a little bitty way that 
somebody's going to criticize, oh, you're so self-centered. You know, you always take the biggest piece of cake. Not just that. I mean, when we go on and we can work on behalf with, for others and we provide service, it's the self-referencing thought. Our self is at the heart of it. Long time that goes on, and yet at the same time, there can be the recognition, ah, this self-referencing isn't actually the world through the sense of me, isn't ultimately what it's all about. Ultimately, there's something else, and it is not about me. It's centerless. Those are all words. And it is something that I know that some of you, maybe many of you, have experienced. And if you haven't, well, this is simply saying it's there. Continue long enough. And it is to be experienced directly. Experienced to be uh, directly. Now, I can say that egos do not like this. Egos say, whoa, wait a minute. This isn't about me, and uh, eagles have big investment in life being through my eyes. I'm saying right now that actually both are true. I'm not saying that suddenly the ego and that self-centered perspective drops in some deep pit and is buried forever and ever. Maybe there are some very highly, there, I will say there are some highly evolved individuals for which that's true. I can't speak to that. I will take it on faith. The Buddha was one, and there are other contemporaries today for whom that's so. But we ourselves can know, you know what? We can experience both. And I just invite you, even if you're saying, what is she talking about? You know, I've lived all these years, and I have no clue. How about just listening in your heart and letting the words resonate? Letting them resonate, it's there. And finally, ultimately, this is where the spiritual path, the meditative journey leads. And it's good to know what the whole of it is, even while we are working in terms of our own life and seeing our own issues and becoming clearer. That's important, we need to do that. We are embodied beings. We need to be able to see what's important and to live on a clearer, more compassionate way. And at the same time, there is this other recognition, this recognition that is timeless, that is compassion itself, not about me. It is mindfulness itself. It's where the journey of mindfulness ultimately takes us. It's not me-centered but it is the source of all the me-centeredness that we have, the source. Sounds like a contradiction, a paradox, and it is. So I will say individuals throughout history have tried to put words to it. Failure, it's all a failure. Finally, the only question is, does it resonate in your heart or do you think, I don't have a clue and let me forget it? I just invite you to let it be there and to consider it. Finally, ultimately, um, I said we meditate to learn what's true. Eventually, especially after this shift has happened, you simply meditate to meditate. 
not even to know what's true, because all is well, just as it is. To meditate, simply to meditate. It no longer matters if you, that you're not the greatest meditator in the world. It no longer matters if you improve or not. You're simply unconditionally meditating. You offer it up without a goal. Mm -hmm. You're just there doing it, just there doing it. So, um, you know, the Buddha spoke about the eight worldly dharmas, what he called, and I heard a beautiful comment by Tara Brock who called it the uh, worldly winds. And among those worldly dharmas are pain, pain um, a gain and loss, gain and loss. We, want, we do something because there's a gain in it, or we regret the loss. In this new context that I'm talking about now, on this other level of consciousness, when it comes to meditating, there's no longer gain or loss. All is well, just as it is. You don't have to get better at it. You just are there doing it, just there doing it. So I have here um, a cartoon to show you. Many of you have seen it before. Two monks, probably Zen monks, by the way they're dressed and the austerity of it all. A young monk sitting here looking very disconsolate, looking often with a frown in air the other opposite direction. And sitting next to him, a very elderly wrinkled monk who is obviously and clearly answering the first monk's question. And he says, not the elderly monk says, nothing happens next. This is it. <laughs> now, you see the response of the young monk. He, this is not good news. Not good news at all, right? But you know what? I'm talking about this level, this shift that happens. And you can say the elderly monk was referring to that shift, but it's not quite true. That is, you can understand something else here. Nothing happens next, but the very fact that nothing happens next frees you so that anything can happen. Anything at all could happen. You are free to go into the world and be what you're called to be. Several times in recent weeks, we've been talking about, or a couple of times at any rate, when Jean Van Gemmert came, and then when Pat and Teresa and Helen led a, uh, an evening here, talking about being a Dharma citizen. And what is it to be a Dharma citizen? And each of us have our own thoughts about that, I hope, as a result of those really fine presentations that sparked your thinking and exploration. On the context, in the context that I'm talking about now, of the shift that happens in consciousness, we also become Dharma citizens. We can decide, we don't have to wait for some ultimate shift in consciousness to go out and become active and become Dharma citizens. No need to wait, it becomes part of our journey, right? But also when this shift happens, you realize, whoa, I don't have to act out of any kind of need. I don't have to prove a point. I don't have to act out of anger. I don't have to be driven by anything. I can just do whatever I feel in my heart 
is best and I'm called to do in an impersonal, universal way, I might say. But it's really simple. It's so simple. Dharma citizens. So there's been a lot of suggestions. You know, don't just sit on your mat get a, or your chair or your cushion. Get out there and become active. I don't think it's either or. It doesn't have to be either or. Do you see? We can simply be a Dharma citizen, continuing our practice, and if that shift happens, we're still a Dharma citizen. Again, going back to the Zen tradition, they have 10, uh, um, like a map to the journey, 10 ox herding pictures. And um, they show the journey step by step in the, ter- ter- uh, in the context of an ox and someone who's trying to tame his ox. The ox being the mind, of course, right? So the ox and someone trying to tame him. What's the final picture? Number 10 is the person who's trying to tame his ox. He's done it. Success. He goes back into the world. Goes back into the world. Sitting on your mat, sitting on your cushion, sitting on a chair, doesn't mean that you are pulled away from the world. It can be very much part of the world. Very much part of the world. And I think, finally, this is what vipassana means, as most of you know. Vipassana means to see things as they truly are. That's the name of our meditation, insight meditation, vipassana. We can see things as they truly are. We first think about it, and that means see things as they truly are on this everyday level that our mind understands completely. We're all experts at. I want to see things as they truly are. But then there's this other level, things as they truly are. Once a shift in awareness happens, oh, it's universal. It's, there is a dimension that is timeless. That's as they truly are as well. Vipassana can refer as much to that as it does to our everyday level, where we spend, as practitioners, very much time just working, working, working at that know that this other level exists too. Vipassana points to it. Things as they truly are. Now, I will say in conclusion, in case you've been utterly confused or thinking, where is she coming from? Um, You know what? You don't have to understand it. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you've followed or if you've thought, what's this all about? Because this is a natural process and I'm just tracing some huge big lines, it's a, very, it's a natural process. And finally, if we put ourselves in the path on this meditative journey, the process takes you up. It carries you. It's not your intention. All you have to do is come with this open heart, which every one of us, and all of us, you have been here before. That means you ha- your heart is open enough to keep coming back. You've got the open heart. It will carry you, which means forget getting concerned about what did she say and trying to dissect it or analyze it. That's not the level it can be understood anyway, the dissection and analysis. Let it just sit in your heart. Just sit in your heart. You don't control it. It unfolds in its own time. And what is it that we finally discover when the shift happens? 
We can call it Buddha nature. Some of you have heard that term before. Our pure awareness. It's just close, simple, and we usually overlook it. I want to end by reading a quote from a uh, Zen practitioner, a, a Zen master. Her name is Joan Sutherland. And her comments appeared again in this recent issue of um, uh, Lion's Roar. And she was talking about meditation. And she said, when we meditate, we find the deepest home we've ever known. And she observes that the goal of meditation is, and here's where I quote her, to use the fruits that ripen in the orchards of that deep home, ease, perceptiveness, warm-heartedness, generosity, courage, to use it in the service of the vast and wide world. The world is always tolling its bell for you, and you rise from your meditation seat to respond. Eventually you find that standing up doesn't break the meditation. It just changes the shape. It becomes the way that home accompanies you as you meet the moments of your day. Meditation becomes the way that home accompanies you as you meet the moments of your day. Thank you for listening. So we have just a few moments now. Would anybody like to make any comments or questions? Yes, Cynthia. You meditate because I can. Because you can. Good enough reason. Good, good enough. Hmm? Finally, as I said, we don't need to worry about it. It's going to carry you, and you've been doing it for what? Continue. We just continue. Thank you. Anybody else? Comment? Question? Uh, yes, John. I'm still trying to not get caught up in the thoughts that arise during meditation. So I'm curious about uh, when the shift, if it ever comes for me, uh, about finding the truth. Is that a truth that is it comes in the form of a thought, or a truth that comes in a in a in a way of awareness? Okay, I'll say great great questions, and I'll say a few things. You said you're still caught up in trying. What would you say about not getting caught in the thoughts that come up? Uh, first of all, in terms of our mindfulness meditation, it's not about not getting caught in thoughts, but being aware when they arise and gently letting them go. Don't worry about trying to resist them. Just be there and come back and come back. There's a, it, it sounds like it's a slight, uh, subtle detail, but it's not because it's an attitude. 
Yeah, so the attitude is a gentle, well-accepting uh, attitude. Oh, this is real. This thought is here. Let me come back. Let me come back. Then you said the word truth. I don't want you to think that our every, what we do in the everyday isn't true. It is. This is the way we live. This is our embodied everyday truth. I don't want to say there's only one truth and no other truth. No. This is another dimension or layer of reality. And it does exist in all of the uh, great traditions point to it. Buddha talked about it. He's talking about nirvana. We don't have to get into that right now. But uh, when will it happen? Who knows? This is not in your control, not in anybody's control. It's just that we continue. Right now, I offer this with a hope that it is planting a seed so we can see bigger, a bigger perspective and not just the me-centered perspective. Uh, and at the same time, just to trust, and I will say to love this path. And that's, that's enough. That's it. Yeah, thanks. Anybody else? Jeff. Very much like the image of carrying my home. Speak a little louder. I extrapolate into that that I carry my home into my home as I go out into the world. And the image is such a nice one for me. So thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And thank all of you for coming, and we will see you next week. I think Amma is going to be here next week. Yes, Amma is going to be here next week. Uh, the uh, nun. Theravada nun who's going to be leading and she will be co-leading the retreat uh, at the end of next week with Sharon. So we will see you next Tuesday night.